Shut up and sit down. Welcome. Welcome back to In the Context of Empire. This is Matt McKenna. Once again, I'm not fortunate enough to be joined by my regular co-host, John Lancaster, but I am very fortunate to be joined by Dr. Ellen Ray Cachola, and she is going to talk to us about a variety of topics pertaining mostly to the questions of sovereignty and imperialism in the Pacific Islands, specifically Hawaii and the Philippines. Dr. Kachola is a lecturer of ethnic studies at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. She's the evening supervisor and archives manager at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, William S. Richardson School of Law. And we're very grateful to have her on the show. Dr. Kachola, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Not, not a problem. These are topics that we've wanted to cover and something that we really haven't discussed very much on this show. So just as an introduction... I mentioned that we're going to be talking about these islands, uh, specifically the Hawaiian Islands and the Philippines, which is really a collection of thousands and thousands of islands. But we want to get a little bit of background in your own experiences. So just to start us off, how was it that you became interested in the topic of U.S. imperialism and militarism, and especially through the lens of its effects on the people of Hawaii and the Philippines? So I'm originally from Hawaii. I was born and raised on the island of Maui. Um, my family is from the Philippines. Um, I'm third generation um, born in Hawaii, however. Um, and so I started to make the connections between Philippines and Hawaii and the experiences of militarization when I participated in the East Asia, U.S., Puerto Rico Women's Network Against Militarism Gathering. It's a anti-basis women's network um, that's been meeting since 1989 regarding um, Okinawa. Uh, there was a 12-year-old girl that was raped by U.S. servicemen, and that action like facilitated the growth of women's organizing around militarization in Asia, around Okinawa, and connecting with the Philippines and Korea, Japan, and then to the United States, because those women came to the U.S., to bring up this violence and why is the United States doing this kind of thing. And from there, um, it became the East Asia, U.S., Puerto Rico Women's Network. Um, so Puerto Rico also joined and Hawaii joined. The, ne- the name has changed into International Women's Network now. Um, but in general, um, it was me, um, Auntie Terry Kiko Olani, and Gigi Miranda. We were a group of three women, two Filipinas and one Kanaka Maoli or Native Hawaiian, representing Hawaii to be part of this gathering and representing Hawaii to be part of this network. And so coming from Hawaii to the Philippines, it was the first time that I went there with a political um, in, uh, focus. And so I, from there, we learned from women who were organizing around military bases around Olongapo, Philippines, Mapanike, different villages um, in the Philippines, people fighting against prostitution, women organizing around environmental contamination. Um, um, historical rapes during the Japanese occupation, the comfort women system. And so that really just blowed my mind because as a Filipino in Hawaii, you know, I had the narrative of America being safe and maybe I started to have some critical perspectives hanging around, um, you know, activist communities, but this is really bringing it to home in terms of the Philippine experience for me. 
Um, and so that was a very eye-opening um, experience for me. So when we got back to Hawaii, Auntie Terry, um, she's a Native Hawaiian veteran, female activist, Hawaiian independence, Hawaiian national, um, really encouraged and challenged us to continue to be in conversation between um, Filipinos and Hawaii Hawaiians to talk about militarization also happening in Hawaii. And so she's a long-time experience, you know, doing anti-basis work in Hawaii. So that continued our relationship in the present in terms of um, talking about the impacts of bases in Hawaii and the Philippines and how it's connected to a network of bases all over the Pacific and Asia. But also the kind of challenges and contradictions because while the military bases um, become, you know, the subject of um, indigenous movements, you know, resisting these bases because of the way that they take up land that is sacred to them and, and uses it for destructive purposes. The other contradictory part is that sometimes in Hawaii specifically, immigrants or settlers um, connect to the military bases in terms of job opportunities and careers. I mean, there are also some Hawaiians that have also, you know, have assimilated to the military industrial complex that exists in Hawaii. So everyone is organizing their lives around these bases for um, access to a modern, you know, a life. And so this is the kind of struggle that that is continues to be the focus of my research. And how do you challenge that? How do you organize against that kind of division, you might say, or um, internalized oppression, you might say, or, you know, struggles to support Hawaiian sovereignty, but from also looking at it from the workers' perspectives and the settler perspective, like, how does that work? So those are my questions today. Right. And that's such an interesting contradiction. And I, I, I've run into this argument myself when we talk about the harm of the U.S. base project, which is, you know, last I checked, 800 bases around overseas around the world. I think the rest of the world has a combined 60 or 70. But yeah, the argument that, well, a lot of a lot of the local economies depend on these bases. A lot of people are employed, but then you have to research the history. Well, how did the U.S. military industrial complex become so embedded in these other countries' economies? And that needs to be questioned even further. And, and you've done a great job doing so. Uh, so moving us forward, though, we always like to define terms on this show. So if someone is not as familiar with this history, they can tune in and be able to follow along here. So there's one term I've seen you use in your writing, and that's the Westphalian state. And you contrast that with indigenous communities, specifically in Hawaii, and what you call the diasporic immigrants. So how do you define these terms in relationship to one another? So the concept of the Westphalian state came to me um, during my graduate studies. And I read a book by Michel Foucault called Security, Territory, and Population. And in this book, he wrote the history of the Treaty of Westphalia, where European states, um, when they were rising from their mercantilist to their capitalistic form, uh, their policy was to balance each other through capitalist trade, but if one is too powerful, they would all have militaries to check that rogue nation that was garnering too much power. And so this became the policy for European nation building, where militarism and capitalism become defining features of modern European nation states. And then this form of government globalizes and is installed when they colonize indigenous nations. So in North America, America becomes a big Westphalian, you know, settler state that is driven by militarization in order to have manifest destiny and expansion, um, and also into the Pacific and Caribbean. 
um, but also capitalism is a major driver as well. Um, but we all know that indigenous peoples have always had different philosophies of governance with attention to land and also caring for people. They also had different ways to deal with conflict. Sure, there were battles between tribes, but there was no extractive capitalism or advanced technological warfare. These were not parts of their worldviews. Um, and so that's how I see this, you know, militarized reality. There is a history to it. It's not a natural, it's not an inevitable thing. It's a constructed thing. Um, and, and so it's really important to listen to indigenous communities that have preserved their type, their knowledge of their society and their ways of governing, um, because it creates other visions for how society can be organized. Yes, thank you for that breakdown of, of what the Westphalian state is as compared to indigenous communities. And I think what we're going to get to is the specifically the state of the United States, the, the greatest imperial power that the world has ever seen, has a way of connecting people, various peoples uh, that have been subject to that state's violence, that state's militarism, that state's imperialism. And But before we get to that, of course, a lot of Americans take for granted that Hawaii is just part of the United States. You know, it's this beautiful set of islands. Uh, it's a five-hour flight, I think, from Los Angeles. I've never personally had the privilege of going to Hawaii myself. But, you know, it's just taken for granted that, once, like you said, that this is just the way things are. This was destiny, right? You know, it's embedded into the history, right? So manifest destiny. What was it? It was the destiny of the United States to cross the continent. If this was any other set of 13 original colonies that spread across another continent, we would be characterizing that as imperial by nature. But for some reason, Americans don't see like, well, it was an empire before it even before the United States started annexing foreign territories across the ocean. You don't need you don't need water to become an empire. They crossed the continent through extreme genocidal violence. And then Hawaii becomes part of the United States and later on the Philippines. But before we get to the Philippines. Can you speak about how was it that European nations and the United States came to be so involved in Hawaii's history? When did this happen? What did this look like? And of course, how did Hawaii eventually become part of these United States? So the um, America started to get involved with Hawaii during the um, around the 1800s, uh, when there was increasing m movement and trade across the Pacific uh, among the early. Uh, kind of Western globalizing trade that affected Hawaii was the whaling industry. But before I get into that, we have to know that Native Hawaiians had a whole intact society before this. They had the Akupua'a system, which was a land organization that basically was about focusing on managing the watersheds and ensuring that the water, uh, which was the important life force to grow food, taro and fish ponds and whatnot, needed to be cared for to sustain their population. And they had a whole uh, social structure based on people's roles to manage that kind of system. And so when European traders, um, which included Euro-Americans, but also various Europeans, uh, they started to get involved in coming to the Pacific, Hawaii became like a stopping point. And so they were uh, basically whaling, tr uh, um, uh, hunting whales for blubber, um, because it was needed for oil in terms of lamps and various, you know, innovation of Western technology. Um, and so when uh, Americans and Westerners started to come to Hawaii, they set up these port cities like Lahaina or Honolulu. 
And these became sites of prostitution and the cash economy, where uh, a lot of these whalers would sit and they would have rest, you know, and recreation, and they would also spread various diseases. Um, and it also started to erode into the subsistence economy of the native Hawaiians. I mean, it was the increasing Western contact also meant that there were business classes, Euro-American business classes already setting up in the Hawaiian kingdom. And they were also influencing the Hawaiian monarchies to these new ideas of commerce, of capitalism, which was foreign to the native Hawaiians because they didn't believe in land ownership and selling and extracting land in this like objectified way. Um, but they started to, a lot of these European businessmen and missionary descendants um, you know, they were already kind of doing their role of um, beginning the colonial process of Hawaii. Uh, these missionary business classes ended up becoming part of the, the monarchy's cabinet, influencing laws um, and leading to major land tenure changes, in, which was the Great Mahele was one example, where a lot of the working class Hawaiians, the commoner Hawaiians, lost a lot of their lands to uh, Euro-American settlers who created plantations by buying up the um, the Maka'ainana lands or the um, the lands of the commoner Hawaiians. Um, and so this created a lot of the displacement that we see today in terms of why Native Hawaiians are among the highest uh, homeless population in Hawaii and um, other types of out-migration that's happening in Hawaii and why the land is... Um, has been created into plantations and very expensive real estate here. Um, and so that's how America started to get involved. It was through these early trade with whaling and then to plantations and then to, tour to tourism today. And of course, how that socially and economically affected and politically affected the Hawaiian kingdom and the Hawaiian people. And then also bringing in a lot of immigrants to work within the settler economy that the white people were setting up in terms of Asian immigrants to work in the plantations, Portuguese, there were Pacific Islanders, just different people, Americans, even Black Americans came to work in Hawaii. Um, and, and so there's a lot of different history that's coming up now about how the different racialized settlers of Hawaii shaped the later part of the Hawaiian kingdom into the uh, territory era of Hawaii when it was under the control of the United States. Yeah, that's so interesting. And you know, I do want to connect these two places, Hawaii and the Philippines. But before we move off of that, just, you know, a lot of people that we've talked about the U.S. government like being involved in overthrowing government, other governments on this podcast. And generally people think of that as, well, that's like Cold War era type thing. That's like the that's only happened since 1945. We had the CIA. But actually, they overthrew the government, the legitimate government of Hawaii long before anyone thought of the Central Intelligence Agency. Can you briefly explain like how? How did the U.S. government manage to overthrow the legitimate government of Hawaii that had already existed? Yes. So this was um, in the late 1800s during Queen Liliuokalani's reign. And um, she had been experiencing uh, this group of missionary descendants, and they had organized themselves into this committee of safety. And they were kind of like spreading conspiracies about the legitimacy of Queen Liliuokalani as a leader. And they... The Committee of Safety was led by people like Stanford Dole, who's a major Dole, you know, corporate leader or family lineage um, owner. And he, they were lobbying the United States to push for an annexation of Hawaii. 
um, governor, uh, President Cleveland, he was against the idea when he was president of the United States and he knew that the Hawaiian kingdom was a legitimate government and he was on the side of Queen Liliuokalani. But when President McKinley came on board as the new president, he was imperialist in his ambitions. And so when the Committee of Safety lobbied his administration, he supported that their efforts to annex or to take over Hawaii to increase American business in Hawaii. And so that's how um, there was that first attack on the Hawaiian kingdom um, in terms of bringing U.S. Marines to back up this um, arrest and overthrow the Hawaiian monarch of Queen Liliuokalani, and they put her in house arrest. Um, and the reason why the United States wanted to take over the Hawaiian kingdom was for, their, for American businesses, but also to use Hawaii as a stopping off point because they also wanted Spanish colonies in the Pacific, which included Guam and the Philippines. They needed a rest and recreation, a fueling site. So Hawaii had Pearl Harbor um, and Hawaii had various lands that the military was already kind of uh, surveying for its own strategic purposes. Uh, and so that was one of the reasons why um, McKinley agreed to this illegal annexation that did not have any uh, support because an annexation requires two nations agreeing to be um, annexed. And the Hawaiian people organized the Kuei petitions to resist, like 90% of them, over 95% of the Hawaiian kingdom nationals uh, resisted the annexation and through the Kuei petitions. Um, but yet, it's this history uh, of, of normalizing the so-called annexation uh, that led to the uh, ascendance of the Committee of Safety to create the Republic of Hawaii, which was this uh, the government that the, the missionary descendant plantations or uh, business owners created as a replacement over the Hawaiian kingdom. Um, and then from the Republic of Hawaii, Hawaii was annexed to the United States and became the territory of Hawaii from around 1900s to um, before statehood, which was 1959. And then from 1959 to present, we are the 50th state. But all of this political status is really based on a lie. There was no true uh, treaty of annexation. It was not a legally uh, enacted process. It didn't go through the rules of how do you enact an annexation. It was completely out of, out of process. Um, and so... This is the argument that Hawaiian people are doing today in terms of continuing to argue for the restoration of their sovereignty and all of these things about American status and American occupation and how a lot of people here kind of still try to protect that uh, political status. It's a colonial status that is being protected or fought for. Um, and so from the eyes of the Native Hawaiians. So that's how they got here, how America took control of Hawaii in, in this kind of way. Yeah, it's it's really a story of just a total lack of respect for sovereignty of of, a, of an existing nation. And people come up with crazy defenses of, well, they had a monarch. Well, first of all, like the United States wasn't exactly, a you know, this is height of Jim Crow, 1890. So it's not like the United States had a blooming democracy to be proud of. But that's besides the point. It's a, it's a disregard for the self-determination of an, a society that existed for thousands of years. And uh, mm -hmm. one more comment, you know, we, we talk a lot in the show about the, 
negative influence of weapons contractors and uh, the oil companies. And one, you mentioned the the Dole company, right? Mm -hmm. Samford Dole. And it was funny is like, if you want to talk about destructive industries, you have to look to the fruit industry as well. And the incredible, you know, from the Dole company to United Fruit, these have caused the destruction of, of, of course, Hawaii, but also Central American nations. And it is interesting to to think about when you think of the most destructive industry, most people don't generally think of the fruit industry, but it's caused so much harm. And, you know, continuing with our history here, another aspect of American history that students don't generally learn about is the Filipino-American War and how the Philippines became a colony of the United States. And we'll talk later about subsequently pretty much a a client state of the United States. And it's a shame because... This war, to me, sounds a lot like other wars the United States would later engage in, such as Vietnam, Iraq, Korea, uh, Afghanistan. And it was, of course, incredibly destructive toward the Filipino people. So can you talk about how the Philippines became part of the United States? Most people might be familiar with the overall history there, but can you tell us about how that war changed Filipino society and, you know, subsequently how the, how the Philippines became a colony of the, the U.S. empire. So it was kind of building off of when the Americans took over Hawaii. It was for the purpose of um, engaging in the Spanish-American War in the Pacific. And so um, the Filipinos at the time were also resisting the former Spanish colonial powers that were in the Philippines around the later half, the later part of 1800s as well. And so, um, the Filipinos, um, you know, were fighting and Americans came around them and offered to help the Filipinos. Um, but behind the Filipinos back, the American government and the military already signed the Treaty of Paris with the Spanish government. And basically behind the Filipinos back, um, agreeing that Spain would sell the Philippines for about $20 million to Americans. And this is all during the so-called theatrical battle, you know, the Spanish-American War happening in the Philippines and Filipinos are fighting. There's, you know, war going on. And then this is happening, this kind of traitorous betrayal of so-called American allies actually, uh, you know, being traitors to Filipino people. And then um, when the Spanish were kind of pretending to, like, die away or, um, you know, retreat. Um, the Filipinos thought they were going to be, you know, independent and sovereign, but the Americans went in and basically became the new aggressors and to control them. And they started, Americans started to point their guns toward the Filipinos. And so this again, you know, shocked many of the Filipino leaders. This was, um, reading the writings of Apolinario Mabini and he was part of the revolutionary, um, class in the Philippines at this time in Luzon. And he was watching Emilio Aguinaldo, who was, you know, he had Emilio Aguinaldo and many Filipinos um, had faith in America as a good nation because he, it was kind of, you know, glorious and whatnot during the time. And so, you know, he gave a lot of chances to the American generals when they started to change their behavior toward the Filipino military. And so people were questioning why Aguinaldo was being so nice to, to them. Um, and eventually, you know, Americans betrayed them. But um, they put up Emilio Aguinaldo as the president or as the new leader of this so-called um, U.S. occupied Philippine state 
after the Filipino-American War. So it was this weird, you know, thing happening with the Filipinos that they were dividing in, in their uh, revolutionary ranks with the leadership, some of them siding with the Americans and then some of them continuing to fight against the Americans. Um, and so that was around the, uh, after the, the Filipino-American War, which was the Filipinos fighting against the Americans. Of course, you know, millions of Filipinos died. Many of the militaries was already exhausted fighting the Spanish-American War. And there was a divide happening in the revolutionary leadership. Um, and so there's a, a, I, the, the notion that the Filipino-American War supposedly have ended in around 1903 or something like that. But there are different arguments that it continues today. And so American occupation started around the early 1900s. And there was different strategies of the Americans to pacify the Filipinos through benevolent assimilation, which is the idea of using education to erase the memory of their resistance against America and to erase the memory that they lost their independence to America. Um, and so that was through Thomasite's education systems. Um, and also the Americans propped up the mestizo classes in the Philippines, which are Chinese, Spanish, native, mixed, mestizo hybrid uh, communities that became the landowning classes of the Philippines. And they are considered the ruling elites of the Philippines that are basically like large landowners, but over time they manifested as warlords basically, you know, using the plantation lands that they've created those lands into plantations, they've created mining corporations, they've created these types of extractive industries in the Philippines that keep farmers and indigenous people extremely poor. Uh, these warlord politicians do not allow unionization. They kill anyone that's trying to organize people to fight for economic or social justice. And so we can see that today with Duterte um, and the history with Marcos. All of these things are manifestations of this type of uh, political economic system set up since the American occupation of the Philippines. Uh, and so I think that a lot of that is 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 the backdrop for the, the problems that the Philippines is facing today. Even if the Philippines achieved so-called independence from America in 1946, I think it was a whole theatrical effect. It wasn't real independence because you still had that landed class, like what you said, serving as the clients of American economic and, and other multinational interests. Thank you for that history. It's so important. And I encourage people to read more about the Filipino-American War. It's tragically not discussed much in traditional U.S. history textbooks. And students don't generally learn about it. So in our school, we do try to make it a point to, to emphasize that incident because it was a horrible war, you know torture, mm -hmm. uh, the murder of civilians, concentration, concentrating populations in, uh, into sections of the islands uh, where, wherein if you were not, not located in that specified zone, you could be killed. And really, I mean, it is not a stretch to say that this could have been called a war of extermination, at least for a few years. And it, it just mm -hmm. a, you know, a blatant imperial act. But you mentioned toward the end there that the United States was involved in the Philippines in a variety of capacities, even after that war ended. You know, of course, the Philippines was a colony. But then in 1946, the Philippines gains its independence as many as the wave of independence movements was starting to kick off post-World War II. And many people make this mistake. Well, the United States isn't really an empire because it doesn't hold on to territories anymore, which would be, of course, news to people who live in Guam or Puerto Rico. But 
There's also this question of sovereignty versus independence, right? Now, the countries like the Philippines may be nominally independent, but the question is of sovereignty. And can you talk, you just mentioned the word neocolonialism and we'll get into it. Like, so since 1946, you've talked about a variety of ways that the United States maintains control over the Philippines. Can you talk about some of the methods that have been employed by the United States to maintain its hegemony over Filipino affairs? And you, you mentioned one, which was the schools, which is, that's huge, right? You control control people's minds. You, you propagandize the population. But what are some of the other ways that the United States has been deeply involved in Filipino affairs? So, yes, the schools, the propping up of the mestizo Filipino landowners, um, which became the political elites, the ruling class, as well as hosting military bases in the Philippines during, you know, um, the 1900s uh, to the Cold War. Um, so places like Subic in Olongapo and um, Clark Air Force Base were two very classic American style I guess, brick and mortar type of bases that existed in the Philippines um, during the Vietnam War. It was a major kind of stopping point for the Philippines on their way to Vietnam. And, you know, creating, again, the same idea with Hawaii, creating whole economies around military bases in terms of serving the needs of troops. So the prostitution industry propping up around the military bases to provide the rest and recreation for the troops. And um, and, you know, and so it, it, it becomes job opportunities, right? Even though it's a very, uh, uh, health, negative to health, if it's destructive to people's human rights, but yet it, it's this economic opportunity that's created. And of course, it's all under euphemisms of entertainer or, you know, other types of things. Um, but there's all these kind of backwater underground economies that happen that lead to the exploitation of women and children. Um, and then the ways in which, uh, after, you know, during the Marcos era, you know, a lot of people were organizing for resistance because of the corruption of the government. And then after that was the people power movement to kind of oust him and to try to bring back some order to the Filipino people. And then there was the ousting of the bases in 1991, uh, after the people power movement. And so it seemed like the military was out of the Philippines. But um, after that, there was uh, basically a shift in how the U.S. would deal with the Philippines through the Visiting Forces Agreement, which was this idea that American military would still come to the Philippines and train with the Philippine military in different types of jungle warfare areas. And all of this was to continue the repression against indigenous peoples in the rainforests and other peoples that were farmers that were trying to fight against the political corruption that was continuously extracting from them. Um, and so there was this kind of, the Americans no longer kind of invested in a brick and mortar military base, but more of a touch and go that will work with the national militaries and, you know, exchange our ideas, share arms, but we're not going to fully be there all the time kind of thing. Um, and maybe have the Filipino military be our little brown brothers kind of thing. Um, and eventually the policy changed to enhance defense cooperation agreements. Um, and it's the same idea of like um, kind of just supporting the Filipino militaries to grow into its own type of American style military, but it's not Americans there. It's Filipinos that are operating these bases or their military strategies and whatnot. 
Right. We're definitely going to get into how it is that militarism and U.S. bases are a tool of, of, of empire and how they, they're, they're used to control societies. But before we move on, I, there's just a very famous uh, notion that Filipinos often don't stay in the Philippines. And there's this incredible Filipino diaspora. My own, my own in-laws are Filipino. And they came to the United States in early 1980s, which, of course, was during the Marcos era. But it, it's not an accident. It's not an accident that so many Filipinos have to leave the Philippines. Of course, most people would prefer to stay in their own countries and, and, and in, enrich their, enrich their own society through their, their work. How has your U.S. imperialism, U.S. Uh, influence on the Filipino economy contributed to why so many Filipinos end up in places, well, like Hawaii, like, and, you know, and many other places around the world? Why do they have to leave the Philippines? You know, when I talk to my cousins in the Philippines about why they still want to come to Hawaii, they tell me that among the highest paid jobs that they can have are serving in the military or serving in the police. So that already shows that the national budget of the Philippines is paying, is kind of like overfunding the military and the police, just like in America. When we say defund the military, defund the police, the same kind of struggles are happening in the Philippines. And so education, healthcare, all of these types of social kind of well-being types of industries are paid very low. Um, and this is again part of the kind of the warlord econ economy, right? They want to maintain these large tracts of land. And again, this is all under the tutelage of American rule and American policies. These warlord politicians want to maintain control of these lands for extraction of natural resources, and they don't want to have any interruption of that. So they want to keep the people poor, and they want to keep them uneducated in the Philippines so that they become the cheap working class. Um, but if there's any good career, it's to be part of the disciplinary class, which is the military and the police. And so, of course, people are like conscious of this, and they're like, this is not a just society it's it's like you're you know it's screwed and so that's why many filipinos when they want to find a decent living job living wage to care for their families they have to out migrate to other places for jobs and so they come to hawaii they come to america uh, to the united states and you know um there's a history, the first waves of Filipino out migrants were agricultural workers and they were largely bachelor men and they worked in, um, you know, for, uh, plantations, in the canneries, um, and whatnot. But post 1965, you had more of a professional class in terms of the doctors leaving the Philippines. Um, and then recently there's much more like carpenters leaving the Philippines, nurses, you know, leaving the Philippines to work in other countries. And it's because the domestic economy of the Philippines is being controlled by these warlord politicians that don't want to create a healthy economy because it keeps the people down so that they can continue to extract. Um, and it's all under this American strategy or this global strategy to keep Filipino a nation as a export oriented nation for the comparative global economy where this, this, the Philippines has this kind of, you know, the position of it. It's, it's a very destructive, uh, positionality of the Philippines within global economic systems that I think needs to change. It's, it's completely unjust. Right. You've talked about even since independence in 1946, that came with, it was like independence with some terms, right? So it's, 
you could be independent and, and then the U.S. make forces them to pass, I think it was called the Bell Act, where, you know, you Filipino companies still can be owned by Amer- uh, foreigners. And, and, and of course, that allows multinational corporations to exploit the Philippines' resources. And of course, those resources could be used to improve Filipino society. And it just relates to this larger concept of something we've seen all around the world where again imperialism does not mean necessarily taking over colonies you know it can mean empowering a small group of people in a particular country as you mentioned in the philippines to maintain control over a rest of population to put down uh independence movements i think the philippines is the hukbalahap movement the, the a leftist movement that in the 1940s and 50s but in other places it's meant different things right it's it's meant helping the right-wing governments of El Salvador and Guatemala crush the people's movements. And that's what U.S. imperialism has mostly been since the Cold War. So thank you for explaining what that's looked like in the Philippines. Now, I I do want to make sure we get to all our questions, so I'm going to kind of combine a, a couple here. So we, we discussed militarism, and I think you very adequately told us how, how it is that U.S. militarism affects places like Hawaii and the Philippines. Uh, and of course, this applies to places like Guam as well. But you lamented that the Philippines was going to take part in in this RIMPAC. The, I forget what it stands for. The, I, I'll have to refresh my, my memory. But you lamented that the Philippines is taking part in military drills with the United States. So that's become part of the the structure of the Filipino military to take part in drills basically structured by the, the United States. So they've been doing that, but also there's the war on terror in the Philippines. And a lot of people don't know that the war on terror has been also fought in the Philippines with horrific results. If you look at what uh, some of the damage done to cities in Mindanao, the southern part of the Philippine Islands, I mean, this is roughly equivalent to what's been done to like Raqqa in Syria or uh, Mosul in Iraq. So can you talk about what that participations look like? You know, these military drills and then actual military exercises like the war on terror exercises in Mindanao. So RIMPAC is the Rim of the Pacific exercise and it's based in Hawaii. And basically the U.S. Navy coordinates and invites militaries from all over the Pacific Rim and actually even beyond that into other parts of the world to come to Hawaii to to test and to kind of see if they want to buy the most highest state-of-the-art naval and military weaponry there is from the weapons to the technologies, as well as to knowledge in terms of like generals sharing knowledge with other generals. And they have like these conferences, they have these kind of like testing where they, they test the ships off of the Hawaiian coast, like in Kauai, and that affects the ecosystem here and the animals in the ocean. And then all of these soldiers from all over the world come and converge in Waikiki and they participate in the prostitution industry. And there's a lot of this kind of macho um, brouhaha that they kind of bring with them, this hyper-military culture that comes to Hawaii uh, because of RIMPAC. And, and so the Philippines is one of the participants of RIMPAC. And it was very sad for me because, you know, Philippines militarization is this ongoing issue. And then this RIMPAC thing is just kind of like another layer of their, um, the deepening militarization in the region in terms of how the United States Navy and the military is propping up these military weapons and um, arms trade as a, a, like kind of like keeping up with the Joneses, right? You want to buy the latest weaponry to become more economically developed. 
And it's part of this, again, nation state strategies to having invest in the military, invest in the police. And this model is, you can see is replicating through RIMPAC because it's kind of like building a club of nation states to copy American form of Westphalian development. And, um, and part of the, again, the economic strategy is to arm the Philippines. Uh, as a way to, again, use the soldiers and the weapons to kill indigenous people, to kill the uh, farmers, anyone who's in the way of lands that corporations can, you know, get into those lands to mine it. And so it's all about building your military as a way to repress people and to take resources to build more capitalism. That's a sign of economic development, according to this RIMPAC Westphalian, you know, um, strategy that's spreading to uh, former third world nations and other Pacific Island nations. Yeah, that's that's so interesting that the the U.S. has all these these alliances on paper, but really they are very much hegemonic relationships. And it's all about, to, from my outside view, it, it appears that all of this is done in the name of countering China. But you know, it's easy mm-hmm. to see why China will point to. It seems like. The U.S. is the aggressor, right? They're surrounding China. And, you know, for whatever issues China has, it is not China that is surrounding the U.S. And, you know, I don't know if this is your area of expertise, but of course, the the war on terror has been fought in the Philippines. Would you mind talking about what that has looked like in the last 20 years? Because it was it was news to me. And it's amazing to me how much how much cooperation there's been there. And I, I say cooperation in quotes because it's not it's not a one-to-one relationship. So would you mind discussing that? So the war on terror, as I understand it, has largely been centered in Mindanao Island, the southern island of the Philippines, because it has a, a large Bangsamoro nation. That's there. It's the Muslim nation, Moro nation of the Philippines. And so the Abu Sayyaf and different types of... Um, uh, I guess, uh, militant types of, um, fighters in, in Mindanao that was against, uh, the Philippine national government taking over their lands. Um, but also how that was supported by U.S. funding, uh, to fund this war in Mindanao. And the war on terror was, you know, again, this anti-Muslim strategy that was spread around the world in America and different parts of Europe and whatnot. And so that was playing out in in the Philippines as well in Mindanao. Um, and so, like you said, they bombed, you know, major cities uh, in Mindanao recently. Um, and there's a lot of still a lot of pressure between the different MNLF, MILF, um, you know, these Islamic liberation fronts that are in the Philippines. And they're still struggling to have a peace, peace talks and uh, with uh, the Philippine government. And given that. Mindanao has also become uh, a mixture of, you know, repressed Lumad or indigenous groups, the repressed Bangsamoro, but the history of northern Philippines sending settlers, Christian settlers down there to basically try to take over the population there and, and set up settler colonies of this uh, Luzon-centric, uh, Manila-centric kind of government and control of Mindanao, because Mindanao never truly accepted being part of the Philippine nation state, that they had uh, allegiances to, you know, older kind of allegiances to Southeast Asia in terms of the Bangsamoro uh, relationship, the Islamic, you know, history of Southeast Asia. And so the Christian North of Luzon was kind of another sign of this kind of neo-colonial uh 
aggression against the, the independence and the sovereignty of the Bangsamoro people in Mindanao. And also there's indigenous people there too that also struggle to be part of that conversation. Um, there's a lot of battles about um, between, there's a lot of civil war in Mindanao where a lot of people feel like they're caught in the middle. Um, and so the war on terror has been really just funneling the arms to create that chaos. Yeah, it is amazing that countries still agree to participate in the United States war on terror. And it just seems to be there's not a single success story where terrorism has been decreased. Uh, it's just given so many people more reasons to be radicalized and, and want to commit acts of violence. So just this is just yet another example. And so we only have about 11 minutes left. So I do want to make sure we, we get to the, your work and stuff, some really amazing projects that you've been working on. So you talk a lot about militarism and also tourism. Tourism is a major industry in it. You've talked about a lot of the harm, the immense harm that tourism has done uh, in terms of violating the sovereignty of so many people living in these islands. So can you talk about the project you did, the walking tours called Detours? What was the goal of this project? What did you do? Uh, this was a project with young people. Uh, what did you teach them regarding uh the place that they live, that is, that is Hawaii. Uh, and what did you teach them about the tourism industry, about militarism, and how successful was this project? So Detours is a project that I first learned from Kyle Kajihiro and Terry Kiko'olani. And they were doing detours of Pearl Harbor, or Pu'uloa is the Hawaiian name of Pearl Harbor. And so the way that they were doing it is basically having like these guerrilla tours of organizing communities to come and try to decenter the U.S. military narrative that dominates what is now Pearl Harbor. And so how they do that is they bring in stories of indigenous uses of land and show how Pu'uloa was such a food producing place before it became a naval Superfund site. And, um, and in order to put forward their, their narrative that, you know, we cannot continue to believe and support this military use of land because it's about war, death, and poisoning of people. And so based on that kind of narrative structure and being a student of Kyle and Terry, I, I started to reflect on how do I talk about this to the Filipino community in Hawaii? And again, um, you know, like I said, Filipinos, or oh, did I say it yet? I'm not sure if I did, but many Filipinos have migrated to Hawaii um, and they think it's, you know, part of America. And so they want to work here to achieve the American dream. But that kind of conflicts with the Native Hawaiian struggles for sovereignty and independence from America. So it's it's a little bit of like needing to bridge, uh, you know, the immediate histories of Filipinos with the struggles of Native Hawaiians and helping them to see this whole imperial system, right, that connects the Philippines, makes it unstable, and then they come to Hawaii to work in the settler colony of Hawaii that was also a victim of imperialism. Uh, and so I wanted to create a detour that will connect to Filipinos. And so I ended up working with Auntie Terry to research Waikiki. And everyone knows what Waikiki is, major tourist destination. But among the workers of Waikiki are many Filipinos. Um, and a lot of my students, I was doing a peace and justice after school club when I was working a couple years ago at Farrington High School. And I wanted to talk about all of this stuff with my students. And they were largely Filipino students. Um, and so a lot of them had friends that were signing up to join in the military because 
Farrington High School, among other public schools, have a lot of military recruiters that come and tell them that they can join the military and access college if their family can't pay for their college. And so I wanted to make a, a, a tour that helps them to connect and to critically connect with the way that Waikiki, which is their parents' workplace, has a history of militarization. Waikiki, as we know it, has Diamond Head. Diamond Head has a military installation carved into it. And it was part of this camouflage kind of strategy during World War One to World World War Two um, to shoot guns out of the mountain for the incoming attacks from the southern coast. And then there are other multiple forts in Waikiki, Fort Derusi, also uh, shooting these large artillery towards the ocean. And then they would get coordinates from Tantalus, which was a mountain that's the backdrop of Waikiki, uh, and to find the direction of these enemy ships. And also during World War II, Waikiki was shut down under martial law, and a lot of tourist um, hotels were bar- barbed wired and everything. And um, so, and the connection with tourism serving as a rest and recreation for military personnel when they come to the islands. Um, and so, you know, trying to, this whole detour was my own learning too, of my own research and trying to talk about this connection. Um, eventually I started to learn about parts of Waikiki also being a food producing site where native Hawaiians used to grow taro, um, and harness the waters that the natural stream flow that came from the mountains down to Waikiki. And that whole place used to be this fertile food producing zone. But under American colonization, that whole place got dried up to become Waikiki. But again, it's part of that narrative of like, you know, what truly keeps us safe? Is it this ongoing militarization that continues to put our people, you know, at war and displacing us? Or is the opportunity to use our land to grow food and to feed ourselves and to take care of each other, is that safer? You know, having these discussions with the young people um, is, is really been, you know, part of that process for me to to help organize and um, collect and share stories and build Filipino decolonial communities in Hawaii with immigrant youth uh, to be organizers, bridging um, immigrant Filipino struggles with Native Hawaiian struggles and other Pacific and Asian struggles. And my goal is to really uh, redefine our economies away from military economies toward uh, restorative economies, towards things like Green New Deal, you know, climate justice, a lot of things that AOC and other people are doing up in Congress trying to push for these defunding the military and the police. I feel like these types of frameworks and narratives and visions give us something to work toward for the youth to work toward rather than just constantly believe that the military economy is the only way. Right. And Hawaii is such a beautiful place. I can say that without having been there myself. It's like just notoriously this beautiful environment. And how can we talk about the environment? How can we talk about the Green New Deal without talking about the military and defunding it's the largest institutional polluter on the planet? And we really need to think about this. So thank you for doing that work. And I understand that must be difficult because, you know, so it's it's so embedded into the community, right? The tourism industry employs a lot of these kids' parents, I imagine. The military, of course, employs many of their parents and may end up employing them. So that work is really hard. And, you know, as we're, we're closing out here, I don't, I do want to be respectful of your time, but if you have time for just a one more question and then a, a closing question, 
you know, a lot, a lot of scholars talk about this idea of the colonial mentality, but you discuss it as more of a structured and sociological oppression inflicted on colonized people. So you talked about the schools uh, in the Philippines, uh, but certainly there are other ways that this, the, this idea of being supportive of your own oppressor has been propagated amongst many peoples around the world. But, you know, we're talking about Pacific Islanders. So while recognizing, of course, there's diversity in the ideology of all groups, and it's also worth identifying that I do not speak for any Filipinos, but anecdotally, it seems to me, you know, I'm largely talking about my my in-laws, my especially my wife's parents, they're extremely supportive of the United States. Like my father-in-law is like the biggest Trump supporter, you know, waving the American flag, getting angry at football players for not standing for the anthem. So it sounds like you do think that this is birthed out of a deliberate project. And, you know, this is part and parcel of, it, of imperialism. So I'll just ask, besides the schools, how else has this colonial mentality or alternative name project, how has this been conducted on Pacific Islanders and how successful has it been? Well, you know, the idea of this colonial mentality, the first time I came to really understand it was reading Lenny Strobel's book, Coming Full Circle. And she kind of takes her an autoethnographic approach to exposing the way that in the Philippines, under the American education, she learned to hate herself and to love everything white. And so, you know, and she goes into the history of that. And I think that's where a lot of um, Filipino diaspora parents, um, the immigrants, I think they're operating in, in that level of kind of operating out of the education system that they received in the Philippines. And also the fact that some of the Filipinos were able to make a life out of themselves in America in terms of finding a job and being able to increase their standard of living. So they have that gratefulness, I guess, to America, especially our parents. But if you're a child, if you're a young, you know, second generation or, you know, child of immigrants, you grow up with black you know, communities, Latino communities, native communities, and they have a different experience of America historically and in the present. And this affects your understanding about America, right? Like for me, I, you know, I, I was very much impacted by native Hawaiians, by black people, by black culture. And so I got a different experience from my parents and we start to question that normalization of American colonization of the Philippines and the Filipino mind. Um, and I think when people like Lenny Strobel wrote her book, it really kind of resonated with the ways that we grew up and our, our probably our parents grew up in terms of this denial of our native identity and also the erasure of the histories of violence and, and pain that is embedded within Filipino culture and history. And it's like people are numbing themselves and, and just choosing to run the rat race. And it's, it's like this pain that they're kind of uh, uh, ignoring um, and, and using forms of addiction to kind of carry it out, if it's drug or even if it's capitalist addiction or, or, or uh, material addictions um, and how all of those things are part of American culture anyway. So it's normalized addictions, right? And I think that when we, when I read Lenny's book, it really broke me down in terms of questioning how I was raised. And then, you know, all of the things that my parents told me about what to do and how that was 
in conflict with what Native communities were struggling against and in conflict with what Black communities are facing with the anti-Black issues in, in the Filipino community, you know, and having to create my own mind and liberate my own mind from the colonial uh, education of my parents and family community um, and creating your own independent vision of what it means to be Filipino, I think, is part of this struggle to uh, liberate the Philippines. And because we are in the diaspora now as a product of our displacement, but there has to be, we have to think outside of the box. We need new perspectives to fight against this system of oppression because Hawaii and the Philippines, we can't fight against imperialism on our own. We have to learn how to build translocal, transnational movements. And it has to be alliances across differences that we can't, we can't try to all be the same in the struggle. We all have different struggles under imperialism and we have to find ways to piece together our struggles so that we can understand what the structure of imperialism is and does and then counter that from knowing what it's doing and offering new visions of how we can be as a local community because our communities are highly multicultural today as well as internationally in terms of nation-to-nation relationships. Yeah, that's incredible. And very much in the same vein as much of this podcast has been and along with our blog. So I'll just very quickly say the reason we started this, we started this podcast and blog this past summer because we, John and I felt that there was a lot of talk about racism and, and uh, justifiable talk about racism and police brutality and subjugation within the United States. And we we were saying like, this is a great conversation, but let's connect it to the vast U.S. empire and the people of color who have been under the yoke of U.S. imperialism, uh, whether that be direct directly through violence, but also people who are subjected to U.S. imperialism in different forms. So there's a long history of, you know, go back to the Spanish-American War, the Filipino-American War. There's lots of African-Americans who betrayed the U.S. invading army to fight with the Filipinos. So that history is really rich, and I, I really like applaud you for trying to make those connections. And I know it, it's obviously difficult sometimes. You know, the propaganda is has not stopped, right? It goes, it's continually flowing in. But you know, I I want to close out here, Dr. Cachola. Where can people find your work? And is there anything you're working on now that you'd like to talk about before we close out? I guess check out my uh, personal website, uh, Ellen Ray C dot weebly dot com. It's my just basically a history of my writings and the types of my mission as an individual in the world. Um, and I'm currently doing some organizing in Hawaii, trying to bridge labor and Aloha Aina movements, or which basically Hawaiian land protection movements. And again, trying to disrupt and challenge the history of division that imperialism has caused on our island peoples and trying to push forward for a regenerative economy towards the lines of climate justice movements and the Green New Deal and other visions for how our societies can be organized for abundant futures, protecting the environment and our ourselves as humans in the planet with other beings. Definitely go check out Dr. Cachola's work, and we'll definitely be promoting it whenever we get the chance to. And, you know, I'm so grateful that you were able to join me today to talk about this because it, intersectionality, solidarity is so important, and you're doing the, the real nitty-gritty work in terms of promoting these ideas. So thank you so much for joining us. That's Dr. Ellen Ray Cachola, who has been kind enough to join us on In the Context of Empire. See you all next time.